This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Steve Jorgensen and for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is Stable Wisdom, Surviving Midlife with Style. The author, Shirley J. Potterton. Thank you, Shirley, for joining us today. Oh, thank you. This is a fascinating book from what I've seen. You are a horsewoman with a lot of skill in that area. You've taken those skills and adapted them to a book that will counsel women specifically on how to handle midlife. Is that the basic premise of your book? Right. I don't... Uh, this is not a book on how to train your horse, and I'm not an expert in training my horse, but I set out when my little filly was born several years ago on April Fool's Day, no less, I set out to try to figure out how to train a horse, because I've never actually trained a horse from a baby. And I, I learned a lot about myself as I was working on training this horse. It was quite an interesting discovery. How did you get motivated to write this? Is this your first published work? Well, I've published in a couple of magazines and things like that, and I've written a lot of curriculum for the university where I work, but I had not published a book before this one. And actually, it didn't really start out as a book idea. I started out on as just a mission to figure out how to teach this horse how to behave, and then I realized how much I could apply what I was learning about training this horse um, to my to my academic career, even. And so what started out as just my own personal mission ended up in five years of research on various topics that I thought would be very interesting to women. And they were, they were the topics that I think are interesting to me. And um, I wanted to figure out if there, was, if there was any way that one could apply the lessons learned from teaching a 1,000-pound animal uh, to do what you ask it to do in a quiet voice to what you would do uh, as as a leader in any field. In reading some of the highlights of your book, I consider it a motivational book. I don't know if you do, but I certainly do. Some things that are very practical, down-to-earth, and commonsensical, but people need to be reminded of them. The first thing you say is mm-hmm. get started. Exercise. Just show up. Those are important. Imagine the best outcome for yourself, and you right. give some tips on that. Find a friend to share the journey. Those are some great tips. How would you describe this book is it a motivational book? Is it a practical application book? How would you describe it? Well, people tell me that the book is very inspirational, and that was kind of where I was going as, uh, yeah, mo- definitely motivational. But I tried to make it specific enough that it would be useful. So when I say things like, you know, act as if or just show up, I explain how to do that and how that would apply to any adventure you might want to take in midlife. Because we know from lots of research that if you can't imagine the outcome, it's not going to happen. Correct. And your book is not just a read for ladies, is it? No. I've had several men tell me that they've had it, you know, their wives have bought it or whatever, but they've read it and they said, you know, that it really applied to them also. I do think it applies mostly to midlife people, but I had an 83-year-old woman tell me that that's just not true. She said it would apply to anybody of any age. She said she got a great deal out of it. Well, so yeah. I, think if you, I think if you want to keep going and you want to keep contributing, um, that the book gives you some ideas on how to do it. What would you consider to be the number one recommendation inside the covers of your book? Oh, I think one of the first things, anyway, that you need to do is to look at your automatic thoughts as you go into midlife or as you go into any kind of change. For instance, um, if I think that there's no sense in me exercising, for instance, at midlife because, oh, I'm old and it's not worth the trouble, if I think that, then I'm going to not exercise. And yet, 
I, I want people to challenge those kinds of beliefs with, with research, which I provided, which shows that people can exercise and their muscles respond the same as they get older as they did when they were younger. So it's, it's, there are lots of myths about aging that are just not true, and, and new science and the experience of many people have just proven that to be completely wrong. This book is an interesting read and easy to read, I might add. It's not complicated. Yeah. You've got some no, very not. practical application to life values. Who do you think it would appeal to and why? Well, I think it would appeal, like I was saying, to anybody who is interested in making a difference and making a change. It's kind of a blueprint for for change. In my case, my inspiration, I guess, was, was this little filly that I was trying to train. And I, it, she was the reason I would get up and go out there and try one more time to do something, even though I wasn't very good at it. Um, but I think it, the things that I learned working with this little horse apply to anybody, whether you, whatever you're learning or trying to do, especially at midlife, I think, because that's, that's a tough time. We've not viewed it as a really uh, great time in life, and yet I think it's the best time in life. It certainly should be. Mm-hmm. Is there any challenges or specific problems that your book can solve? I think that it, it, it allows people to look at where they're going, where they've been, and where they want to go in a little bit more practical way rather than just getting up every day and doing what you've always done. It, it's kind of a challenge to say, am I going to doing the things I really want to do? You realize at midlife that you're not going to be here uh, forever. And so if there are things that you have unfinished, now's the time to do them. And some of the interesting research that I've read shows that as we become older, uh, we actually become more creative. And I think we need to use that newfound creativity to help solve some of the problems in education and wherever. What ideas are in your book that will get that creativity energy level up and get it kicked into gear? That's probably the key to having everything else work is, is the energy levels. And because my mantra as I went into midlife was I don't have time, I don't have the energy, I don't have time, I don't have the energy. And so I tried to figure out, well, why don't I have the energy and why don't I have the time? So I discovered that, interestingly enough, when you exercise, you actually gain more energy. It, it may tire you out for a few minutes, but it actually makes you uh, have more energy in the long run. And that's something that we really have a hard time with, especially as we enter midlife. We don't like to exercise many of us as much as we used to. It's not as fun. We're not maybe as good, but we have to keep moving. It's true that if you don't move, you will lose it. So we have to keep moving. And and a reasonable diet, um, you know, there's an epidemic of diabetes and a lot of that can be solved by, you know, cutting way back on sugar and just just eating less. We have so much that it's real easy to eat, to overeat. It's, it's a problem. It's a challenge. If I had the answer to that, I would really be able to write a great book. In fact, I interviewed an author this morning. Well, I won't tell you what her book was about, but it had to do with uh, obesity in the, uh, in the United States. And it was a fiction, had to do with recycling and a far-fetched concept all in one book. Did you include some practical ideas for exercise and getting the energy levels up? I do. Um, I have a master's degree in physical education, and I have also kept up on exercise um, and all of the research that's going on with exercise, especially as it relates to aging, for for my whole life. And I, I have a blueprint for exercise that's reasonable and it will get the job done. I follow it myself. It includes, you know, interval training, which is uh, probably the best thing you can do, both for weight loss and for energy levels. Um, it includes weight training, and you don't have to, you know, you don't. Your your goal isn't to look like the people on the on the magazines. Your goal is to be able to get up out of the chair when you're 85 hmm. without any problems. So I've seen people go into old age. Uh, that are, that are still exercising at in their 80s and 90s, and they're just doing great. I know there's a genetic factor here, too, but exercise probably trumps it. I, I knew a gentleman who lived to be, I think, 99, but he was mm-hmm. a tennis coach into his late 80s. 
So I'm unbelievable wow. amount of exercise. I, he just cool. fascinated me to watch his his life and his energy levels. That is incredible. Yes. Yeah. Uh, how was the, what was the process in writing this book? Did it take a long time? Was it a, a culmination of all your research? How would you describe it? Right. I didn't set out and say I'm going to write this book with this many chapters and here's the chapter title. I set out to find out what I could do to come up with more time, more energy, how I could train my horse. I just wanted to know what was going to happen in the next few years. We really don't talk that much about it. And um, in the process, I started jotting down some common themes. I also interviewed dozens of of midlife women and some men also uh, to see what their questions were. And, And I started looking at some common themes. And that's where I came up with the the titles for the chapters and where I came up with the topics that I wanted to really delve into more. Each chapter is illustrated with stories from real-life people. And photographs, I might add. problems in a big way. Yes, and photographs, I might add that, too. They're they're well done. Staying connected with friends, something I'm having difficulty with since I passed the age of 39. Uh, (laughs) Even though I'm not technically challenged, there are a lot of folks who are baby mm-hmm. boomers who don't sign up for technology and are having difficulty staying in touch with people that were important to mm-hmm. them in their past. How valuable is that? Well, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm well past 39. I've just made it a point to learn how to use uh, Facebook and things like that so I can stay totally connected with my my grandchildren who live in Tennessee. I, I want to be connected, but I also have friends that are nearby, and we, you know, I think you have to make it a priority because the research shows that if you, the more friends you have, the less ailments, the fewer ailments you will have as you get older. So I consider it a huge priority, and I don't think we make a big priority of it. And I don't mean texting all the time. I mean actual face-to-face talking whenever possible, but Technology makes that possible for all, anywhere because of Skype and FaceTime and all of those other technologies. I have to ask my grandkids how to do stuff. I tell my my no. sister all the time, she's, uh, I will say, advanced in years, does have a yeah. computer, doesn't know how to use it. I told her to find the first nine-year-old kid in the neighborhood, have him come over and go. fix it, and he probably no, could. six years old. Six, they know he, how to it's do probably it. down to six. Is this book similar to others in the marketplace, or would you call it different? I, I love the photos in here and love the content. My opinion is it's a little bit different, but I would love to get your perspective on that. Well, I looked at, a, I looked at every book I could find that was even vaguely related to this topic to, because I didn't want to recreate a wheel here, and I couldn't find anything. There were a lot of books, well, not a lot, but there were some books on how to uh, get back into writing as a midlife woman, you know, horseback riding, um, and there were books on a few books on aging and things like that, but they're not, they weren't written in a in a conversational kind of a style. They didn't seem all that accessible. So I didn't set out. I'm not qualified to write a book on how to train a horse, but I did. I did tell my story about how I was finally successful in in getting this little horse to do what I want it to do. And the lessons that I had, all the troubles that I had in learning how to do this. So I couldn't find anything that was that was like this at all. Well, I love that you've paralleled your experience with horses and uh, have adapted them to, I will say, training people, but motivating them to lead a more productive life. Shirley, what was the most challenging part of writing this book? Oh, the most challenging part, I think, was just it took so long to do it. And I didn't feel like I would be a credible uh, writer of this story if I hadn't already solved some of my own problems. So it took time for me to figure out how to solve my problems with my horse. And um, it took a lot of time to get the research going. It took me five years. And so just sustaining that the energy and the excitement over that amount of time, uh, that was challenging. You know, I was I was ready to give up on many times, as you can imagine. Is this your first book? Right. It's and, my first book. And is there another one in the works? I I have several ideas, actually. I, I really enjoyed the whole process, and um, I might try my hand at a mystery. Look forward to hearing from that one. Or hearing about that one, excuse me. i got to do a lot of corrections on this interview. Sorry about that. Not your fault. 
look forward to, to reading your next effort. This looks like a fabulous book for all people going through midlife or thinking about it. And uh, certainly has some great information here that everyone can adapt. The title of the book, again, is Stable Wisdom, Surviving Midlife with Style. Our author, Shirley J. Potterton. Thank you, Shirley, for being with us today. Oh, thank you so much. Where can we get copies of your book? Uh, it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iUniverse, uh, and some bookstores. Have you found any 8- or 9-year-olds to help set up a website for you yet? Well, I actually uh, hired someone, but I think she's in her 30s. <laughs> <laughs> and is it developed? I do have a website. Good. It's www.stable-wisdom.com. Fabulous. We'll take a look, and hopefully our listeners will do the same and keep in touch with All your right. future projects. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Connect with Juliana and connect with what lies beneath. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Juliana is a marriage, family, and child therapist who wants people to connect. Connect with what lies beneath, those truths and answers. And through her counseling practice, she has helped others find their personal power and fulfill their dreams. And she wants to do the same for you. Here on Connect with Juliana. Through intimate discussions, intriguing subject matters, and the expertise of her guests. For more on the show and Juliana, check out her webpage. Connect with Juliana in media.com. Juliana will cover it all. Nothing is off limits. She wants to know what matters to you. Make the connection. Tune in to Toginet to connect with Juliana to find out the facts that could be hidden beneath the surface. Connect with Juliana on Toginet to make a quality connection in your life. Friday afternoons at 4, 3 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, A Shade of Darkness, and the author is J.A. Clausen. And Janice joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Janice. Hi, how are you? Great to have you with us. This is a quite a unique uh, group of characters because you're mixing pirates, which is fascinating to most people, with mm -hmm. vampires, which are fascinating to most people, and of course, uh, a paranormal love involving vampires. We'll find out more about the details of this, but before we get into the characters and uh, this plot, tell us about yourself, Janice. Uh, how did this all come about? What's some, you know, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, I just, I uh, learned to read when I was like in grade one and I just love to read and I'm a voracious reader so I was just reading all the time and then I thought when I was older I thought hmm, I could I could write a book but I could I never um it took me a while like I just thought oh no way I can do that but I'm and then my son my oldest son I was always telling them that I would like to write a book as well and he said oh come on mommy I know you can do it and he just kept pushing me and pushing me and finally I just sat down and started to to write the book so well, you could write a book about many different things, obviously. Fiction, it mm -hmm. could take you all different kinds of places, but you chose to 
go down the road in the life of a pirate, but as well with very, uh, I don't know what to call vampires, except uh, obviously uh, it's uh, the real strict stretch for of fiction, but at the same time, uh, very, very, is the word alluring to people? For some reason, they're, you know, this mystical power and this, vampires seem to capture the imagination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I've always liked the paranormal. So, yeah, and I've always, I grew up liking vampire movies and, and books as well. So, um, and then I wanted to give it, uh, like, I like romances, and I like pirates because of Johnny Depp and his pirate character. So I thought, well, I'll just mix the two together and come up with a vampire pirate. <laughs> and thus, a shade of darkness. Well, yep. let's learn about some of the characters. Let's, I guess we'll start with, is it Bronwyn? Bronwyn? Yeah. Yep. Tell us about Bronwyn. She's kind of your alter ego. Is that really true? Yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's okay. um, a successful author, and she um, wants to write her second book, and she decides that she wants to um, go on a working holiday, do research while she's on her holiday, and um, she wanted to always wanted to go to the Caribbean, so she thought, well, there's a lot of pirate places or old haunts in the Caribbean area, so she thought she'd just go down there and and do some research. And while she's down there, she runs into a very unlikely character, Vince, who is a pirate vampire. So, um, and, then, and a very good-looking one, right? I mean, she's kind of yeah. captivated by him. Yes, and, he's, and he is captivated by her as well. Something lures him to her mm -hmm. and yeah and um, they meet and he entices her into having an affair with him and and fall in love <laughs> so yeah and the the really the rest of the story is when a vampire bites you and drinks your blood you become one So yeah, and then she's living through the process of becoming one and and how to live being one. He teaches her and stuff, so yeah. I mean it sounds kinda gory. <laughs> this is not <laughs> yeah. this this book is not meant for the youth. This is an no. adult book, right? Yes. It's definitely yeah. adult and there's a lot of steamy parts in it as well. So it's for um, adult women who like steamy fantasy type reading. <laughs> so yeah. But this one, yeah. this one though, you know, you always think of vampires. You always think of evil. You think of you know, obviously, uh, uh, deception and control. But this has got mm -hmm. a little twist, doesn't it? Yeah, he's he's um he's a nice guy that was turned into <laughs> a vampire, and he decided that he was going to be a nice guy instead of a bad guy, I guess. <laughs> so Vince, the nice guy vampire. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, well, don't hey, forget pirate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's right. He's the nice vampire pirate, <laughs> and he's even a nice pirate because pirates usually aren't very nice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, he he just lived so long that he wanted something different. Wanted to be Okay, when you say he's lived so long, uh, you know, how long has he lived? Um in, in 1735 he became a vampire, so Ah. Uh. And he was about Is that right at the be Is that right at the beginning of the book we learn about him being seduced? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. what's her name that seduces him? Xenia. Xenia. Now, mm -hmm. she's a bad vampire. I mean, she's pretty she's evil. Bad. Yeah, she's the bad one. She yeah. is the bad one. 
She she wants to control everybody. Yep. And she finds out about Bronwyn and Vince, and she doesn't like it. Oh, yes. Because she wants Vince for herself. Yes. Yep. She wants him back. He had left her, and now she wants him back. So is this a real uh, different kind of approach when you when you're in this whole realm of vampires and of course the vampire makes you one of his or her own is it possible to get away from the clutches of that vampire or is this just of your making I don't know <laughs> <laughs> You don't know <laughs> I I'm thinking yeah, he, if you if you want to get away and you love someone enough to to do it, then you've got the will and the power to do okay. it. Okay, yeah, the power <laughs> of love then is a part of this, huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's certainly a great theme that women love, and probably men should love it too. The power of love. Mm-hmm. So this is a great yeah. love story. As you say, also, it's got steamy parts. It's not for the youth or kids, yep. but it is a real twist and has, uh, well, you take us to some beautiful places, too, don't you? Because that's kind of where you'd like to go. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did a lot of research on the places, and I I would like to be visit those places someday. So, yeah, I love the the sun, the hot sun, and the beautiful water, and yeah, so. So we're talking about the Caribbean and the Florida Keys, that that whole area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Someday. All right. Well, who who else is a is an important character in this book? Who else? Um, there's just the three, really, the three of them. Okay. Yeah. It's Okay. Yeah. I didn't have a lot of characters. Just so, wanted it. So what is Zenia up to? What what is her I mean, what's the bottom line plot here? The the conflict. What tell us about that between Zenia and of course Vince and and Brownwin. I mean, what what are we dealing with? It is just that he she had got he had gotten away from her and she never like she didn't let him go, he got away from her, and she finds out that he's back in her territory or whatever, and that he's made this other vampire, and she doesn't like it. Like, and she finds out that mm -hmm. that Bronwyn is a beautiful woman or whatever as well, and and she doesn't want like that competition and stuff. So she's going to try to eliminate her competition and get. Back. Yeah, it sounds like a showdown. Yeah. Yeah. You always gotta have a have a bad guy in the movie and or in the book and so yeah. <laughs> so Vince is going to save the day. You're gonna have uh, quite a conflict between Vince and Zenia. Yeah. 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 Vince comes and rescues Bronwyn, and then um, he gets captured himself, and then he does the whatever he can to get away. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So this is leading to more books, it sounds like. Uh, you're already into your second book, and your character, what, who are the characters in the second book? Oh, there's going to be a whole bunch of characters in the second book. Xenia is the main character, and it's how she became evil. So we get to see how she became evil and what she was and how she, why she was that way with Vince and stuff. So, yeah, and another character is her, her maker. So, yeah, and then a whole bunch of other characters are involved in this. A whole book. bunch of new characters. What's what's the title of that new book? Um, it's called A Shade of Darkness, Xenia's Story. Ah, so you're going to continue on with the main title, A Shade of Darkness, but this one is yep. Xenia's Story. So uh, 
So what's your advice to folks who want to write the book? I mean, you, it took you 20 years to write it? Is that yeah, probably. Correct? 20 years. The, so what's your... Um, just if you want to write a book, just keep at it and say that you can do this. Like, you can do anything you set your mind to. So all you got to do, you just got to keep telling yourself you can do this. And that's... It helps when somebody else is there behind you, pushing you into mm -hmm. doing it. But, yeah. How much uh, time did you have to spend on research before you really got into the, the you know, the characters and the plot in, in a very uh, detailed way? Um, well, I actually started to write the book before I did the research. And as I went along, I researched it. So I might have did it backwards. I don't know, but that's just the way I did it. Mm -hmm. Well, it all worked out, but there is uh, a lot of uh, research sometimes required to get the settings right and to get the uh, characters right. Mm -hmm. But then the characters seem to take on, a, take on mm -hmm. a life of their own. Is that what happened? Yes, definitely. Yes, I was just... Um, my son kept pushing me, and then all of a sudden it was like halfway through the book. I didn't need that anymore. I wanted to see how my book was going to end, and so it was like, oh, now I, you know, got to finish this thing so I can see how it's going to end. But, gonna end. Yeah. <laughs> so, so did the ending surprise you? Yeah, I think so. Like, it, it just took, it turns and twists through the whole thing. Like, it wasn't. And I wasn't sure exactly how it was going to end, but when I got there, mm -hmm. then I knew it was the end. So, well, that's always yeah. fascinating me with fiction writers, how that seems to be a general explanation of how, you know, the books uh, develop and the characters develop, and, and it just takes on a life of its own. Well, Janice, uh, a lot of people say it's an easy read. It's just a page-turner. Yeah, um, I think it would be a good uh, holiday book to buy because you could get it read over the holidays. So, yeah. Great stocking stuffer. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> yep. Well, congratulations. Congratulations, Janice. Her book, A Shade of Darkness. Uh, tell us how to get your book. Um, you can buy it on Amazon.com, um, Kindle, uh, Kobo. For now, anyway, I'm hoping I can uh, branches out more and and go to bookstores and stuff that you can go to the bookstore and buy it. So great. Well, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aide Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 Central on Toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu, Wednesday nights at 10, 9 Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Sweatshops in Paradise, a true story of slavery in modern America. And the author is Virginia Lynn Sudbury. And Virginia joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Virginia. Hello, Steve. How are you? Well, this is an issue that nobody likes to recognize and talk about. It's like, well, that happened, you know, that slavery thing, that happened way long ago, and slavery today in business, but it's really going on all over the world, isn't it? 
It is. It is. And I think that the difference we had when we hear slavery, at least in American history, uh, in American history context, we think of a traditional, you know, what happened in our in our South. And it's very, very different right. from that because it's so invisible right now. Um, we see people every day that are probably being trafficked. They're brought in by family members to work in restaurants and, uh, in, and obviously in our, our fields. And we just don't see it and we just don't recognize it for what it what it might be. But you know this firsthand because you were the lead attorney for garment factory workers in American Samoa. And, well, it turned into, uh, it looks like quite a battle that you had. And you're still battling, aren't you? We are still battling. Uh, fortunately, we've left the physicality behind. <laughs> and we're battling just in court and um, to get my clients, to get our clients paid, obviously. But... Um, it did start it start on uh, the island of Tutuila and the territory of American Samoa as just what looked like a wage claim. So just a wage claim. People weren't paid what they were promised, but as you exactly. dug into it, you found out, I, I guess, the, the real horror of the whole thing. That's exactly true. I really did think it was just a wage claim. Again, I had been primarily doing um, family law, a smattering of some other kinds of law. But uh, when the when the first nine ladies came to our office, we had no idea that it was something other than just them getting them paid the wages that they had contracted for. And then as we visited them, as we met more, remember nine workers came to us first, but there was about there were a total of about 300 workers at the garment factory. And uh, most of them were young women, most of them from Vietnam. There were probably 20, 25 Chinese gentlemen that had been that had been brought in from China as well. And if I can go ahead, the way they came onto the island was was somewhat unusual. The government of Vietnam runs. Uh, in, 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 the government of Vietnam had two companies. One was called International Manpower Supply, and one was called Tourism Company Twelve. And those were recruiting companies. And they hired a a Korean gentleman named Kil Su Lee, and we'll call him the bad man. And he went through these management companies in Vietnam and recruited several hundred workers to come over and labor in this garment factory in American Samoa. And he chose his, his locale wisely. American Samoa is uh, a bit of a melting pot. Obviously, there's Polynesian, um, Fijian, Tongan people there, but there's also Japanese, Chinese, um, and uh, Filipino, but there's no Vietnamese. So when the Vietnamese ladies came over and wanted to reach out and find out whether what they were experiencing was what they had bargained for, there was nowhere to go. They were completely disenfranchised because no one spoke Vietnamese on the island. So they were really in a spot. Hmm. So basically, people could get away with anything they wanted to get away with. They could, under the right auspices. And when Kilsu Lee contracted with the American Samoa government for the garment factory to operate the garment factory there in the island, um, the government was supposed to have imposed a bond. When you or I go to uh, American Samoa, we have to post a bond equal to uh, our return airfare. So we can guarantee that, you know, the government can guarantee we're not going to become a, a, you know, a burdensome to them. Well, they waived mm -hmm. the bond. They waived the bond for all those women. So when they, they gave Kilsu Lee an enormous financial break, and in, in, in ease to bring the workers over to to the island. So they they had already they had already started being complacent, and I think that that relates to today's our world, in that we look the other way. Well, it must be good for business. We're going to bring all these workers in. Well, we just again, mm -hmm. like you said, have to scratch the surface a little bit, and we find out it's something very different than how it appeared. So tell us about this rampant abuse of these women, uh, not only civil injustices, but this abuse and literally it was imprisonment. It wasn't a job opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I guess it all depends on where you're standing, but no, it didn't look like a job <laughs> opportunity to me. <laughs> right. uh, they, were they were brought over. They were, you know, as advertised, oh, you're going to go to America, you know, streets paved with gold and what have you. Um, they had a, a swimming pool. There was a, an Olympic-sized swimming pool. 
uh, and it's supposed to be, you know, a gorgeous tropical island and what have you. And the island is, in fact, gorgeous if you look up. But if you look down, you see things that aren't so gorgeous. And one of them was the, the actual garment factory barracks, and that's what it was called. It was a barracks. It was a mm-hmm. huge compound surrounded by a barbed wire fence, and there was a little guard house that you had to pass through and to submit to the guard when you came in or left. The women were housed in 36 to a room. Uh, they slept on foam, you know, just like a four-inch piece of foam, um, like bunk beds on the walls. And that was also right there on the compound. There was a cafeteria, and uh, there was, in fact, a, a, a swimming pool. And I saw the swimming pool, and instead of being filled with water, the swimming pool was filled with toads. I'm not exaggerating this. This is like a foot of toads in the bottom of this pool. Wow. It was it was such a metaphorical hit. <laughs> it, was just, it was just hideous. But, um, mm-hmm. again, the place was just, it was just awful. The conditions were horrible. They received about um, one chicken per day for all 300 of them. And they mostly ate soup and broth and and similar things to that. They lost considerable weight. A number of the women stopped having their periods. They became very malnourished. Um, they just weren't being. They did, in addition to not being paid money, so they could couldn't go out and buy anything. They literally were being um, deprived of food. And it, and I do want to make one note here, and I do want to thank, and it's very important, the a number of the the American Samoan locals, both Samoan and Palangi, uh, non-Samoan. When when the ladies realized that they didn't have food, and they 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 had no way, they had no mechanism to eat, and they had no mechanism to earn money. They reached out. They would stand outside stores. And they would have this little sweaty piece of paper in their hands, and it would say, it was someone who had written it in English for them, and it said, can I come to your house and, um, you know, tend your kids, rake your leaves, fix your meals? And a number of them hooked up with what my co-counsel and I called safe houses. And so whenever something really bad would happen at the factories, they would scatter off to the far reaches of the island with their safe homes where they were fed and protected. It was just a... It was one of those little gems you find in in the grass on Easter. It was wonderful. That was the good part. The rest was bad. So, so the the neglect of this really tragic situation beyond comprehension, even in you describing it, it's uh, well, it was prison for these women. I mean, how how did you ever get to the bottom why the American Samoa government just neglected this whole thing and just kind of turned its back on it? You know, that's the, probably the $64,000 question. I, I have my suspicions. I believe it's because, well, I think it was a number of a perfect storm of bad factors. I think that they, they had been a little resentful of our office when I first started a legal services firm to help victims of domestic violence because there was a real backlash that there could even be something perceived as domestic violence on the island. Okay, so we've got a cultural difference imposed mm-hmm. initially. But secondly, it was it was it was a it was a black eye to the government. When um, when we got involved in this lawsuit, remember we went to court probably once a month for 14 months, which is a lot for any case. We always went in on um, enforcement actions against Kilsuli and against the factory. Pay my people. Let my people, let my ladies out. Don't imprison them. Let, don't hit them. Don't spy on them in the showers. Obviously, feed them better and so forth. And so every single time we went to court, we won. And every time we went to court, the paper would report it. So the island was, the population was very aware of, of exactly what was going on with the case. And I think that really, really made the government mad because they weren't doing anything. You have these two little, you know, two lawyers trying to make sure that labor laws are being followed. I mean, it wasn't our job to do that. It was the government's job. And I think that they had, because they had, we didn't know this then, but they had waived the bond for the workers, and I think they just didn't want to um, you know, get any, touch it. They just didn't want to. Um, one of the most vexing and horrible, wasn't even vexing, it was, it was life-changing, um, horrible events that happened is, 
remember every time we went to court, somebody had to get on the stand. One of my work, one of our workers had to get on the stand and testify, which was huge, because then they had to go back to the compound and be subject to all this abuse by Kusuli and his minions. And we finally, out of the 300, we found a woman, and her name was Zung, and she um, was our, she had learned enough English to, to help translate. And again, remember, nobody spoke Vietnamese. And also remember that we had Vietnamese, Samoan, um, English, Chinese, and Korean languages in this, lo- in this lawsuit. So every time we went to court, we had to attempt to have all those five languages translated, which was <laughs> just a nightmare. It was oh, horrible. Goodness. So, so we finally decided on new, uh, Zoom as being our translator and a woman named Na as being our lead plaintiff, which means she would be the face of the class action shoot. She, she was, it's Na V. Daiwusa is the name of the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Well, a few, a few minutes before, or a few months before um, we were to go to trial in January of 2001, in August of 2000, the girl, the Na and Zoom were down at the beach and enjoying one of the tide pools and gearing up for trial and gearing up for all this stress that was in their lives and coming. And a big wave came over the tide pool and swept them out to sea, and they were drowned. So we what? lost oh our tra- our translator, our one translator, and our name plaintiff. So morale, obviously, I mean, plummet, I mean, plummeted. There was just if this badness could happen to us, and I couldn't keep him safe. I couldn't. I could have him. So we pursued and we plotted on and we continued on our path. And then three months later, or two months later in November, uh, right after Thanksgiving of 2000, uh, they had a shortage of material at the factory. And Kilsu Lee ordered the Samoan employees, there was about 30 of them, he ordered the Samoan employees to beat up the Vietnamese. So they did. And, and one of my ladies had her eye gouged out with a, PVC pipe, a sharpened PVC pipe, but a couple others lost their hearing. Everybody was bruised and everybody was scratched and everybody was poked with them. It was a sewing, there was scissors everywhere. It was just a, a horrible, horrible, horrible event. And that's when the New York Times heard about it and did an article and again came right back to Krista and I. It was our fault this had happened. Um, we got threats from the government. We got we got called in front of the Congress to testify. I mean, it was horrible. This mm. was in no way their fault, as they thought it was, or Kilsu Lee's fault, for that matter. No, he was never prosecuted for this by the, United, the American Samoan government, never prosecuted. And um, so we were, obviously, when we went into trial, we were our, our morale was very low, and we were very hopeless and despondent. Human trafficking is everywhere. It's you know this is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. I think it is, and I think it's a it's a more visible tip in a uh, less visible in one way because American Samoa is so far away. It's so far flung. It's five thousand miles away. We're not going to go there. We don't visit. We don't see it. But one of the most horrible parts to this, Steve, is that when the workers were one of the duties that the workers did when they sewed was that they would receive these garments in from other from countries in um, the east, you know, in the Pacific Rim. They would be mostly assembled, and what our ladies did was sew Made in America tags in them. So you can't, you, it was a mostly constructed mm. garment that had these little finishing touches, a hem, a cuff, and a, and a, and a label sewn in on American territorial soil, which, you know, it, it, it conveyed to me as a buyer in the store, oh, this is made with, you know, attendance to our labor laws. These people aren't right. abused. These people right. aren't trafficked. So it was just such a big, just, just a big joke. When we did go to, when we did finally go to um, trial, it took five weeks. It was in January of 2001. It was the longest trial at that point in the history of the uh, territory, I understand. And um, after we finished, we, the court said, we'll take it under advisement. And left the bench and we did not get a decision for 14 months so my ladies were stuck there and couldn't leave and didn't know what to do and were very unhappy and wanted to see their mothers and I wanted to leave and it was just it was just a horrible situation a few days after the trial ended though is when one of the best things ever that happened and the government of um, the United States government the our Department of Justice 
swooped in. <laughs> Attorneys and FBI agents swooped onto the island, arrested Kilsu Lee, incarcerated him in Hawaii, and offered status, a certain status to all the uh, trafficked victims to come into the United States and apply for the T visa and then eventually become United States citizens. So all but about 90 of the workers are now in the United States. A number of them have um, families. Quinn, the woman who lost her eye, is in Honolulu running her own business. Um, a number of the ladies now are, are citizens and voted in the last election. It, it ended so wonderfully in that one sense for them. Now, 14 months later, we did get our decision. It was resoundingly in our favor. We received $3.5 million from jointly and severally from Kilsu Lee and from the Vietnamese management companies. We have never seen a penny. Vietnam is denying wow. that they owe us any mm -hmm. money, that they didn't do anything wrong. Certainly, how could they know? On and on. Kilsu Lee has since been convicted of a number of involuntary servitude and money laundering charges, and he's spending the rest of his days in a federal penitentiary. So we do seek recompense for our clients. My clients worked for a number of <laughs> years without any kind of wages, and mm -hmm. we do seek that still. Well, it's an amazing story, and it's not <laughs> fiction, everyone. This is, you know, this is reality, and there are sweatshops in paradise the title of this book, A True Story of Slavery in Modern America, and we've been listening to Virginia Lynn Sudbury, the author of Virginia. Tell us how to get your book. Oh, well, I will. You can get on, um, get it through Barnes & Noble or through Amazon online. Just type in my name or Sweatshops in Paradise. And if you um, are interested, you can also contact me directly. And my website is, or my address is Virginia at loves.biz, and that's L-O-V, as in Virginia, S as in Sudbury, dot B as in boy, I-Z as in zebra. And that's my website, or that's my um, email address. You're, if you do want to contact me and purchase a book for me, I'll sign it and you know, inscribe it for well, you. Great. But Fantastic. most importantly, let's be aware, let's watch in our lives. Is something too cheap? Is something too good to be true? Does somebody who is serving us at a, mm -hmm. at a, a sushi restaurant look furtively behind them? Do they have their passport? You know, let's just mm -hmm. be a little more aware. I think that's the only way going forth we can at least um, at least slow this down. It's never going to end, but we Virginia, need to slow it down. Virginia, thank you so much for being with us on iUniverse Radio. Thank you, Mr. Steve. Have a fabulous day iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.